Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clutch. This is Marianne Russo. Tonight, our tweet chat is open. You can click on the link and go into our automated chat room, or you can use the hashtag tag TCK and join the conversation on Twitter. Um, Chuck Wally, May Wilkinson, and Barb Dietrich will be over there to keep you company and discuss the interview. We will be taking callers at the end of the interview, and the call-in number is 646-595-2881, and um, we'll be tweeting that when the time comes to call in. My guest tonight is Ariva Martin. Ariva is a multifaceted woman. She's a lawyer, business owner, head of the nonprofit Special Needs Network, author of The Everyday Advocate, and last but certainly not least, she is the mom of an autistic child. The Special Needs Network, which Ariva founded and is president of, serves as a link between underserved communities and mainstream developmental disability organizations and governmental institutions, which often fail to address issues specific to these communities. The Everyday Advocate is incredible. I read it. I loved it. It has everything in it that you are going to need. Um, it is just, it's a strategic, clearly written book that will provide tools and, and emotional support for parents starting on this journey and for parents, you know, who are well-traveled on this journey. I want to read a review of the book. If your family is facing special challenges, Ariva Martin's book, The Guide, is the guide for getting the best life possible for your child. Her personal and professional experiences with autism make her expertise invaluable. That was written by Dr. Phil. The foreword of this book is written by Lynn Kern Kogel, who is um, the head of the Kogel Autism Center at the University of California, which is an outstanding center. It is an amazing book. Welcome, Ariva Martin. Thank you so much, Marianne. Such a pleasure to be joining you and May this evening. Well, you know, I'm thrilled, and I did forget to announce that Mae Wilkinson is on the air with us tonight. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, as I said, I loved the book. I read it. And I really, you know, you could not be a better fit for our show. You may not know this, but our slogan is, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent. And the way we enforce this belief is to bring on experts and, you know, parents like yourself to educate and inspire and this book really does do that. The, the Everyday Advocate, it really inspires people. So I want to start the interview by talking about the book and then move on to the Special Needs Network, which is just, you know, it, once we go into it, I mean, it's just fantastic. So in the book, I mean, it's a very comprehensive book, and, you know, due to time restriction, we can't go into all of it. But um, you do start with seven principles of advocacy that you write about. So... Yeah. Um, why don't, why don't we start with those? The first one is take responsibility. Yes, and Marianne, the reason I wanted to write a book, and particularly write a book about advocacy, was because early on in my journey I realized how important, how, how incredibly important it would be for me to become my son's best advocate. But what I also realized very quickly was that, you know, this, this concept of advocacy can be overwhelming. It can be daunting. And as I met more and more parents, you know, who were, you know, trying to get the best services for their kids, I realized that they, too, were struggling with this concept of advocacy. So I wanted to, to take that word, that word advocate, and unpack it, you know, and, and take away some of the mystery, demystify it. Because I right. think sometimes when people think of an advocate, they think of a lawyer. 
You know, they think of a lobbyist. They think of a politician. They think of, you know, someone who is, you know, trained with specific training and who's paid to go out and, you know, act on behalf of others. But I wanted parents, everyday parents, mothers and fathers and grandparents and aunts and uncles to realize that they, too, could be advocates. And really all you needed was passion and purpose. And I always talk about this, you know, passion to get something done and, you know, purpose, a strategy to make that happen. So the seven principles of advocacy is just that. It's that, you know, those that roadmap to how you bring purpose to the passion that we know so many parents with special needs kids have. How old is your child now? Do you have a son or a daughter? I have a, I have three kids. I have two daughters, and my son, who's on the spectrum, his name is Marty, and Marty is actually 12 years old now. Okay, so you've been on the road a while, too. I mean, back then, um, you know, I started out a little before you on my journey, and there wasn't much out there. So, you know, I I think that you even had said that that's one of the reasons that you wrote this book, because there wasn't anything. There was no The Everyday Advocate. There wasn't The Coffee Clatch. You know, parents were lost. They were on their own. Oh, oh my God, I can remember feeling so isolated. And this is just, what, seven, eight, nine years ago, you know, asking friends, asking families, what do they know about, you know, this, this thing called autism and getting blank, you know, blank responses, uh, blank stares, or these really far-off responses that had nothing to do with the condition. So you are so right in that we've come so far in just, you know, a short period of time. So much work still to be done, so many questions still to be answered, but, yes, we've made a lot of progress, undeniably. All right. And um, to go back to, um, you know, the seven principles, because I think it encompasses so much just in these seven principles. Um, the first one is take responsibility. So what? how does that become a principle in advocating? Well, you know, the first thing is acknowledge it. And you know, as a parent and so many of your listeners know, that getting the diagnosis can lead to a lot of grief, uh, you know, emotions, depression, I hear parents say that they were in denial. Uh, I, you know, saw parents that, you know, took their kids to a doctor, took them to schools, and they had some sense that the answers would be given to them. So the first principle of advocacy is no. It's that stark reality that no one's going to give anything to you. You're going to have to get it for yourself, for your child. And so taking responsibility is just that. It's, it's acknowledging your role that you have the power and you have the responsibility to become your child's best advocate, just as your motto says. And, you know, as as obvious as that may seem to so many parents, trust me, on my journey I've met thousands who that wasn't very clear to them in the beginning. They, They didn't know. They thought that somehow maybe the doctor, maybe the school system, you know, maybe some entity out there would really take on, you know, the responsibility of advocating for their child. Right. So, you know, but, but we learn very quickly, you know, many of us learn very quickly that, no, there isn't, you know, any big brother out there waiting to step in and to intercede or to intervene, you know, on behalf of your child. There are people that you can build as a team who will help you, and there are wonderful people you'll meet on your journey, you know, other professionals, other moms, you know, other caregivers, but, but you're the captain of that ship. You're the captain. 
Absolutely, and I think that, um, you know, when you were talking before about the diagnosis, you know, I tell people all the time accepting the diagnosis is one thing, accepting the life it will bring is something completely different. And um, it is a huge responsibility because you have to adjust your lifestyle to, you know, the the changes that are going to take place. And, um, you know, as you were saying, you know, oftentimes parents think that someone's going to just come in and advocate for their child and is is going to be able to um, solve all their problems. And, you know, that's not the case, especially since it's such a big spectrum and with comorbidity, these kids are all so different. And that leads to the principle, too, which is learn. You know, and again, can't talk enough about how important it is for parents to immerse themselves. And, and I know for me and so many of the other parents that I, you know, work with in my law practice, uh, those that I work with in my nonprofit, first, where do I start? You know, that's a big question. You know, where do I get started? I go to Google, I go to the Internet, and there's so, you know, much information out there about autism, and unfortunately a lot of it's inconsistent. You know, you read one website and, and they tell you, you know, one statistic or they give you one piece of information and then you go to another and the information is completely different. And that was frustrating to me as a parent. I didn't like that. I mean, as a lawyer, I'm, you know, I like things black and white, and I, I want to be able to go to some source, know it's reliable, uh, and be able to act upon that information. And, again, that's where, you know, being an advocate, you have a little homework to do. And you have to, you know, cut through what I'll call the muck and the mire, and you have to, you know, Absolutely. get to the sources of information that are reliable. And, oh, my goodness, I, I know you can relate to this, Marianne, you know, reading a report or reading something and thinking that it's applicable to your child. And, and really, as you dig deeper, as you pull those layers back, realizing that it has absolutely no relevance for your child. And, you know, on the Coffee Clutch, we feature all disabilities, not just autism. And, um, you know, one thing that I found is that, you know, the division um, in the autism community is a divide that you don't find. Um, with it, other oh, disorder, no, disorders, and it really puts the parents in a very difficult situation. And um, you know, it is important for parents to learn because you know the, the, there are many different you know thoughts of view and thoughts about treatment, and parents have to really educate themselves. You know, and you raise a really good point, Marianne. And in my book, The Everyday Advocate, the, the title is "Raising Your Child with Autism or Other Special Needs," and, and the reason that it is in, uh, encompasses other special needs is because so many of the things that parents of children with autism face are applicable across the board. You know, if you have a child with cerebral palsy, you know, getting them the best educational placement is still going to be, you know, an issue where advocacy is so important. If you have a child with epilepsy or, you know, so many other conditions that impact children. So we're not just, you know, focused on the child on the autism spectrum, but all those kids who need special help. And your point about division is interesting. I was having a conversation with a guy Works, uh, worked for many, many years at the March of Dimes and had just gone over to work at one of the autism, uh, large autism nonprofits. And he said to me, he says, wow, Ariva, you know, I've been working with kids, you know, low birth weight kids and kids with fetal alcohol syndrome and, you know, all the kids that the March of Dimes focuses on. And he says, I've never seen so many passionate people, but so many people, you know, that are in such adversarial positions with each other. Yeah. He said, you guys, you, you autism moms are, you know, you, you, you autism parents. He said, you're on fire, but, boy, you guys like to mix it up a little. So he was kind of, you know, being tongue-in-cheek with me. But that's a reality, and, and that is, you know, uh, you know, I didn't create it. You didn't create it. it. It just is what it is, 
and I do a lot of speaking at conferences about, you know, how do we bring some of that passion together and minimize some of those divides because when we talk about policy advocacy, which is something I'm also very passionate about, you know, so that's not just me helping my child get the best services. That's me, you know, working at the state level like I'm doing now in California about getting autism insurance passed you know, when, you, when you're dealing with larger bodies, legislative bodies, that, that division that exists in our community, that doesn't play well for us. It's a negative. You know, it, it allows people to marginalize us, and we lose some of the strength and power that we would have if we were more united. So that's a, right. you know, it's a, another big topic, and, and not for tonight, but an issue that, that, that gravely concerns me and that I've been doing some work around is how can we bridge some of these gaps because we'll be so much more you know, are, are powerful as a group at, you know, at the federal level, at, at state levels, at city levels, when we can start to speak with a, a more unified voice. Absolutely. And, you know, the, with Saturday, yesterday being uh, World Autism um, Awareness Day, you know, we, we've been advocating for more than awareness but acceptance. And, you know, I think that crosses the, the lines to the parents, too, because parents need to accept the differences in, um, you know, uh, people's wants. So, um, you know, we we want everyone to accept um, the children with autism and adults with autism, and parents have to be accepting of each other, too. Um, so the third, and brings us to think critically, <laughs> the third principle yeah. is thinking critically. Yeah, that's that discernment. I mean, that is just so important. You know, there's a lot of emotion, lots of emotion with a disability, you know, or getting a diagnosis of autism or any disability for your child. And what I found was that a lot of parents act on that emotion, and they kind of lose, they leave their their good judgment, their good intuition, you know, behind, and they're they're just off on emotion. And what I you know try to get parents to recognize is no, it's the same judgment that you use, you know, in purchasing a home, buying a car, you know, going to college, you know, making life choices. You you want to bring all of those experiences and all of that intuition to play when you are evaluating programs. Uh, you know, I've had parents tell me that they're going to sell their house and, you know, pack up and move to another state because the other state has better services. And and that might be okay, but, you know, I, I try to slow those parents down and say, okay, well, well wait a minute. That's a, a major life change, and it's not just about that one child. What about your entire family? You know, how is that decision going to impact your entire family. And we know a child with autism is going to be infinitely happier and healthier in a stable family than, you know, a family that's broken up and now you're in a state, per se, with better services, but you've left your spouse, you've left your partner, you've left your, you know. So that kind of judgment is so important, you know, when you're making decisions. You know, when, you, when you're spending your money, I, parents have come into my, my law firm and they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on quote-unquote miracle cures only to be disappointed, right. only to be, you know, uh, to, only to still be sitting at home with a child that has autism. But now right. there are hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, or maybe they've spent all their savings, or they've liquidated, you know, assets. They, they've done some things that, again, you know, you have to question whether they were using good judgment. So I, I, I really emphasize that in the book, The Everyday Advocate, and that's so important for all of us. You know, like the same judgment we would use in a workplace, in our personal lives, our professional lives, you know, use it when making decisions with your kids. 
Right, because you know it's such an emotional issue when your child is in pain or is struggling, and it really it is so important to just try to think logically and you know think of the big picture. And you you say um, principle four is to speak with authority, and this I think is key. Yeah, you know, Marianne, a lot of people when they think of advocates, they think you have to be loud, you have to be obnoxious, you have to use right. profanity, you have to, you know. Uh, women, we often get, you know, marginalized or, you know, uh, or, or characterized as drama queens or overly emotional. And this is really about teaching people, you know, using that assertive voice, using that powerful voice, uh, and, and letting your message be heard and, and not letting your message be drowned out by some of the emotions that sometimes, you know, come with it. And, again, it, it, I can think last year I was at a conference and I was really uh, trying to hit that home to parents who, you know, there was a debate about, you know, the vaccines and, you know, whether the vaccines cause autism. And, and I, I, I really talked about messaging and, and how do you message so that the audience hears you? Because you can be right, but if the message isn't, you know, appropriate, if, if the deliverer of the message doesn't do it in a way uh, that they can gain the attention of the, the, the listener, the audience, you're right, but nobody's hearing you. You know, and I give the examples of when I teach advocacy to large groups, you know, look at the people who have had to deliver, you know, really critical messages like Mayor Giuliani, you know, after 9-11. What we loved about him was, was his composure, was, you know, the way he delivered what was some of the worst news we had ever heard as Americans. But right. we heard him and we believed in him and we trusted his message because of the way it was delivered. Versus, you think back to like the Katrina situation, the mayor in that town who was so passionate about you know the devastation there, but he had the tendency to to allow that emotion to take over, and he would you know he would rant and he would rave and you know he would use profanity and and easily he was he he, he was dismissed, you know right. he he didn't convey that same sense of you know control and power. So that's really what that is about is is how do we take our passion again and and, and shape and massage our message so that it's heard and we're not dismissed uh, as, I, you know, I'm sure you've heard many parents say they've gone into IEPs and they feel like nobody's listening to them. Right. And, you know, I, I agree with you completely, and I think that um, it really comes down to confidence. You know, that's what I found in my life, and that's what I find in parents that, you know, come to me to ask for advice about going into these meetings because, Oftentimes parents are very intimidated, and this is not the time to be intimidated. You know, it's not the time to dwell on the negatives. It's the time to be informed and focus on the positives. And, if you you know, if you're a confident, informed parent, you're going to do just fine. You know, it doesn't have to be adversarial. And that's what I think no, people have to understand. No, so you're absolutely correct. But that confidence comes from, you know, knowing what to expect. It comes from preparation. Uh, you know, it comes from having an understanding of what some of the key terms are. It comes from understanding what your legal rights are. It comes from knowing what your child's strengths and weaknesses are. So there's a lot that goes into getting someone to that place of confidence where they can go into that meeting and not feel so intimidated, you know, not have a meltdown, not allow the emotions to take over to such a degree that, again, they're no longer being heard. And so, again, you know, these advocacy principles in the everyday advocate are designed to help parents get to that place where they can speak with authority, with that confidence, because they've, you know, they, they've, they've built this 
very solid platform from which they are proceeding. And we're going to go on a little bit further. We're going to talk more about um, the IEP and, um, you know, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Um, but, you know, I think that parents really need to, um, especially if they're not feeling confident and they're very new to this, they should take advantage of the parent advocate that's offered through the district. Yes, um, that's a good you know, source. Yes, it's somebody to at least go in and, 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 yes. help and explain the, you know, the acronyms that you may not be understanding. And I say don't hesitate to ask other parents. You know, one of the, the things I talk a lot in the book about is building empowerment circles and inviting people into those circles that have uh, different levels of expertise, information, and knowledge that perhaps you don't have. Because it's really, you know, the, the, the adage that it takes a village is most appropriate when we're talking about, you know, raising a child with, with any special needs. It, it's not something that I encourage people to go at alone. You know, so right. even if you don't have a husband or a wife or a partner, there's someone in your community, there's someone in your, your peer group that, you know, you can invite into your empowerment circle that, that you can uh, rely upon, that you can build relationship with so that you don't have to be, you know, alone. And I, I have clients, I, I tell you, I have a one client, I, I think I talk about them in the book, you know, they take their entire family, and I mean, you know, 15, 20 people, They've taken into IEPs because they wanted the school to know that this little person here, this little boy here, you know, he has deep roots. And, and we want you to see grandma and grandpa and aunts and uncle and cousins. So when these decisions are being made about this child, we want to put this in the context of who this little boy is. Now, everybody can't do that, and, and it's probably not appropriate to do that, but I thought that was a really unique way for that family to give, you know, again, some context of that. We're not just talking about a number here. We're not right. talking about some abstraction. You know, this is little Johnny, our grandson, our, you know, our nephew, our cousin. Uh, and you can imagine how powerful and empowered and confident those parents felt going into a meeting knowing that they had that kind of familial support. Right, and that's why I think some people, you know, bring pictures, and they have the pictures sitting there because there is a child that you're talking about. Uh, it's not, a, you know, an IEP. It's a child. Um, oh, and absolutely. you talk about documenting, and, you know, this is one of my the, the best things um, the parents need to do. Yeah, you know, as lawyers, we say if it's not in writing, it didn't happen. And I, I tell my IEP clients and my special needs clients and my special rights practice, start thinking like a lawyer on that point, because if it's not in writing, it did not happen, particularly in the IEP document. You can have a discussion about services. You can talk about how great the services would be. And you walk out of that meeting and it's not in that document and you sign it, oh, well, it didn't happen. It did not happen. Uh, and, and getting in the habit of, you know, memorializing your conversations with emails if you're on the Internet or Absolutely. even just little quick notes or keeping a diary, you know, whatever it is, whatever form of communication. Uh, now, most of your listeners are, are on the Internet because, you know, they're listening to this program, but there are a lot of parents out there, particularly those I deal with in uh, the Special Needs Network, who are not connected to the Internet and who don't have, you know, ready access to emails. But even those parents, I teach a, a an IEP notebook class. I've gone into some really poor and low-income communities uh, in South Los Angeles, and, and we've done it the old-fashioned way, like a scrapbook, where we've just gotten out pictures and, you know, report cards and assessments, and, and we've just, you know, made a, a good old-fashioned, you know, scrapbook of everything that's, that's happened with that child to help those parents 
organized so that when they go into IEP meetings, you know, they're more prepared. So whether you're doing it, you know, in a scrapbook format or you're doing it, you know, on your computer, your iPad or whatever, learning to and getting in the habit of documenting is so important. Right. And, you know, that also brings us to the collaboration because they are going to be collaborating with a lot of people, and it's important to document who you've been collaborating with. So principle Um, six is collaboration. So many people from therapists, uh, teachers, administrators, uh, outside service providers, you know, uh, your child may be taking a swimming course or karate, and, you know, they're the instructors in these various recreational courses. So there there are a lot of folks that come into play, again, to support a child with special needs. And learning to build strong relationships with those folks, really, really important. I, one of the tips I give in the book is about, you know, uh, parents calling meetings. Every meeting that you have at your school doesn't have to be an IEP. Having a status meeting like, you know, you would in your, your job. You don't have one big meeting at a company, company teams are meeting all the time. So right. thinking of the team that works with your child at a school, just like you would think of a team on your job. So we're going to have regular team meetings. And, again, they can be in person. They can be via the Internet. They can, you know, be via email, via conference call. They don't have to be long. Just like, you know, meetings at work don't have to be an hour long. Sometimes we're just touching base. You know, five it's people that so work on one team is just touching base, and that's, Really, but again, that's going to be initiated by the parents. That's that's you know again going back to principle one. That's where that responsibility, uh, accepting that responsibility, uh, lies with the parent and parents taking the initiative and saying, hey, you know, I'm going to have one IEP this year, or maybe two, but in the nine months my child is in your classroom, I want to have some team meetings because I want to know what that therapist is working on. I want to know what the you know, the support person in the class, the aide is working on. I just want everyone to be working, you know, in concert, again, for the best interest of that child. And it's, I think it's so important for just that, you know, two-sentence email back and forth with the teachers. How was his week? He had a rough time at home or, you know, he's having a great week at home. Is he also doing well at school? Just keeping that connection, you know, for the child because they're they're at school a long time. It's really, really important. Um, you know, and I think that... Once you start to implement these principles, um, I think parents will be much more comfortable in their role as an advocate. Yes. And this book really, really is just so incredible to empower parents. But I think that one of the problems that comes into play is that, um, and May, you know, I hope you're going to jump in here on this. Um, a lot of parents are single parents. A lot of parents need the two incomes. And the choice to work or stay home is, is often a heart-wrenching decision, especially if you have a child that's more severe on the scale. So for, for some, the decision to work really isn't a decision at all. It's a necessity to a survive. A necessity, no. Right. Absolutely. That's so, a really good point, Marianne. And I talk about... That balancing act, I call it the balancing act in the book, The Everyday Advocate, and how do you balance? Uh, and you, you have those parents that you just identified who have to work both, you know, two parents or one parent because they don't have the luxury of staying home. And then I have parents that I've met who want to work but maybe get pressure from their family to stop working. I work yep. with a lot of professional women, doctors, lawyers, you know, judges, Indian chiefs, who who derive a lot of pleasure out of their professions. You know, they just, hey, I went to school, I earned this degree, I, I run a department, and I love working. But yet mom and dad, grandma, grandpa, they say, you know, 
Why are you working? Your kid needs you. You need to stop working. You don't need it. You know, your husband has an income or your wife, you know, you, you're a trust fund baby or whatever. And I, I talk about how, again, people come to the individual decisions about what's best for them. And I, I, I am so sensitive to that single mom, that, you know, that parent who has multiple kids, who's juggling a job, who's juggling, you know, multiple kids, who's has to get, you know, to therapy appointments across town. And I know this, that, this, it's not easy. Let's just be real frank about it. Right. It is not easy. And, you know, the price of gas and the price of housing and, you know, the job market being the way it's been, thank God it seems to be upticking. But, you know, a lot of parents are, are really struggling. And, and that kind of leads me to why I started the Special Needs Network, because I met those parents and I saw the struggle that they were having trying to manage multiple jobs, you know, maybe two kids on the spectrum with other, you know, typically developing kids, and, and you know, just what that was like. And Special Needs Network so, tries to make that burden a little easier for them. It's so how do parents um, advocate for themselves at the workplace? You know, are there any rights for special needs parents? Oh, there are rights that parents who have, Children have lots of states, and, and this is, again, important in terms of knowing the law. California has a law that allows parents a certain number of unpaid leave from work to attend school meetings. So if you have to attend an IEP meeting or you have to attend, you know, a 504 meeting or, or some other meeting, uh, you can request time off from work and not be penalized. So that's really the issue is that so many parents say, well, my God, I had to quit my job because I had to, you know, go to these IEPs, and, you know, I, I didn't want to keep missing time from work. You know, my boss was giving me a hard time, or I felt like I was going to be, you know, penalized for that. And it's really important for parents, and, and no matter what state you're in, if you have any questions about that, I encourage you to ask. You could start with your school. The school should know this, and if not, they should be able to point you in, in a direction. Start at the district office and ask, if you are allowed time off from work uh, to attend IEP meetings or other school meetings, uh, that's that's a question, uh, and that's an answer that parents in you know states around the country should know the answer to that because that does become a big issue. And Areva, I think that there are some there's a dawning kind of realization that uh, mothers and fathers are very valuable in whatever capacity an organization can have them. So in in my, for my example, um I work for two consulting firms on a freelance basis and they would rather mm-hmm. have me on freelance than not have me at all. There is also the opportunity to job share with another parent. And so I believe at least in professional um the some of the some of the you know more um Oh, some of the more white collar. Let's put it that way. Right, right, right. That that employers um, are more willing to work with us, and and I think we've been very, very fortunate in that regard. But I still have mothers that I mentor that are still working two jobs at, you know, a gas station and a um, and, and as a child care worker in a daycare center where they don't have that type of freedom, and that's where they can go check with their state policies and get that time off that they need to um, help um, with the school meetings and help volunteer in school so that they can actually observe how their child is doing in the classroom rather than have it secondhand from a teacher or a therapist. 
And, and that's a really good point, May. And in the book, The Everyday Advocate, I talk about a lot of creative strategies, like the job sharing one that you mentioned, uh, that parents can consider, including you know, starting a home-based business or, you know, uh, telecommuting from, you know, home. And so mm-hmm. many ways now because of the Internet and, you know, the freedom that so many of us have in terms of being able to work and not be at a physical location, there are many, many more options for, uh, and I agree with you, professional parents. But even those parents that work in more, you know, non-professional jobs, uh, I talk about some ways that they can at least have a conversation because when you talk about, you know, the workplace, what I find is a lot of parents, they haven't even told their bosses that Mm -hmm. their child is on the spectrum. They just, you know, they keep asking to be off work, but they haven't had that communication. And if the boss had known, you know, they had sat down and talked about, here is the schedule, you know, and if I come in an extra hour here or if I work through my lunch on this day, you know, can you accommodate me? And in, in a lot of situations, parents are successful in getting companies to work with their schedules. But they've got to step up, they've got to stand up, and they've got to have that conversation. And, and that comes up a lot. People ask me all the time, uh, well, you know, I, I don't want to tell my boss or I don't want to tell my neighbor. Or I, I just had a mom. Her daughter is in high school. She had not even told members of her family that her daughter has autism. She was having a conversation with her cousin, who happens to be an accountant, finally breaks down and tells the cousin about her daughter because she's having some really challenging times with the daughter. The the cousin says, oh, my God, I just started working as an accountant for a group called Special Needs Network. You've got to connect with this group. And then she emails me, lo and behold, Ariva, I was just referred to your group. And I'm sitting there thinking, wonderful. I'm glad that your cousin, who is now my accountant, made the referral, but how difficult must it be to be the parent of a 16-year-old child with autism and you haven't shared it with your family? Right. You know, and I talk about that advocacy within the family and how important it is. You've got to – this isn't a a deep, dark secret. This isn't something you should be ashamed about, embarrassed about, and and you can't – you can't go this alone. And here this mother has been suffering it, literally isolated and suffering all these years. And, you know, and her cousin was that, so available that, for her. And that's so key because, you know, we don't really have that much time in the interview, but you do write um, extensively about the isolation. And parents, I always find... Oftentimes parents wrap themselves in bubble wrap and they wrap their children in bubble wrap. Um, and... It's something that I think is a knee-jerk reaction is to just, all right, I'm going to fix this problem and it's going to be over with. Well, you're not going to fix the problem. You're going to address the problem, you're going to teach skills, and you're going to cope. So it is really important that parents are very open about their children's disorders. And another thing that I love about this book is that most books really um, just focus on the earlier years, the early intervention, setting up IEPs, this book goes beyond, and that's what yeah, I really we talk about love the about it. Stuff, yeah, because you write beautifully. <laughs> yeah, and you know it's important because you write beautifully and openly about advocating for your growing child. And many yes. of our parents are in or coming up to those teen years, and you write about teen sexuality, a topic not often spoken or written about among teens on the spectrum. And it's really important because the common misconception is that people with disabilities are asexual. And some oh, parents, my God. 
Right? <laughs> and, I mean, some parents try to prevent marriage. They try to prevent re- relationships. They try to pre- prevent reproduction. And, um, you know, adequately preparing your child for adulthood, especially girls, um, is very important because the last thing you need is, uh, you know, unwanted behaviors and unwanted pregnancies. So, um, you know, give parents a little tidbit on that. You know what, Marianne, and I'll say some of that was selfish on my part because I realized my son was approaching adolescence. And I don't care what disability you have, you know, the hormones are going to start raging, you know, the body hair starts to show up, uh, the, the, the curiosity that all kids have. And you're, you're so right that we can't put our, you know, heads in the sand on that. We can't act as if our kids, just because they have a special needs, are not going to go through those same phases that our typically developing kids go through. And we've got to be prepared for it. You know, how do you talk to a child about their changing bodies? You have to do that with your child with autism, just like I had to do with my two daughters who are, you know, quote-unquote neurotypical. Uh so those are really important issues, and I hope by raising that level of discourse, parents whose kids are starting to reach adolescence will feel more comfortable, will seek out help, you know, will really start to address those issues. I just love, I, I wrote about in the book, this program that UCLA runs that gets kids ready for the prom. I was stoked about that. Right, right. Because, you know, our kids should go to the prom. They should go to school dances. They should, you know, have as many of those, you know, typical adolescent, high school, teenage experiences as they're able to, you know, uh and not only sh- and not only should they go, um, a lot of, you know, the Asperger's kids are going. They are going. And I think that one of the problems and I love that you wrote this in the book, is that you do have to approach it differently, explaining it to your Asperger's child, who may be more literal. You can't gloss over it. Yes. No, that you, you really, uh, and that was this parent going back who I told you had the encounter with her cousin, the accountant, one of the things she had done, she has her daughter in a high school, and she's not told the high school that the daughter has autism. So the daughter is struggling, and, and she's like, I didn't want to do it, you know, I didn't want the stigma, and I'm like, oh, my God, you know, and I understand, and, and I'm compassionate, but you can't hide it. You don't think that kids know that your daughter is different, you don't think they're they're not going to tease her. I mean, t- kids are cool, period. You know, right. doing that, you, you know, as they're exploring themselves, you know, and trying to be hip and cool and all of that. So, it's a really big mistake to send your child into an environment and expect that they're going to adjust and and you know act quote unquote normally uh, when they're not. They don't have the tools to do that. You know, they don't have the ability to do that. And as much as this little girl wants to fit in. She's, she has no friends. She, 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 her mom told me she's pretty much, she's very fluid in terms of her language, but she doesn't talk because she's afraid that she's going to be laughed at. And, te- you know, and I'm just, just got a lot of work to do with this mom, obviously, but this is a perfect example, you know, of setting your kid up for failure. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I, I want to move on to um, the Special Needs Network, but I do want to just wrap up the book by, by letting parents know that um, with so many acronyms, um, everything is just so clearly written for you in this book. And um, the pitfalls um, of the IEP meetings and the Individuals with Disabilities um, Education Act and legal um strategies and information it is just loaded and it's such it's 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 an 
book that is not going to overwhelm you. Um, it's it's written in very simple terms, and it is fantastic. So, I mean, if Thank you're looking you. for a book, it really is, Ariva. It really is. Thank you so um, much. You know, and I, I know I, you I, took I, a lot of pride in writing this, and, you know, it's it, it just it's fantastic. So this is a book that whether you're new on the journey or whether you've been on it a long time, you should really take a look at this because this gives you advocacy strategies that for just about every situation. Um, and there are a lot of um, – you, you even have sample letters in there. I mean, it's just, it's terrific. Um, but moving on, um, you've also um, founded and are president of the Special Needs Network. I mean, that's your baby. So, May, yeah, you're going to love this. <laughs> that's, that's my baby. I, I love uh, the work. I'm humbled and honored by the work that I get to do through Special Needs Network. And, you know, there is nothing more gratifying than, you know, helping a a parent help their child, and, and that's what I get to do on a daily basis. And, and Special Needs Network is, is a 501c nonprofit grassroots organization, uh, and we are working on a lot of different levels, but primarily it's about raising awareness, advocacy, and recently we started a, a program that I'm really proud of. And, again, I, I'll say I was a little selfish in, in starting this, but we started an inclusion camp. And it's the only free summer camp program in Los Angeles for kids on the spectrum and other disabilities where they can go uh, with their typical peers. It's a full-day camp during the month of August. We have 200 kids in camp. And during the opening uh, ceremonies last August, I, I teased. I said, you know, I was frustrated because all the camp programs in the state of California had pretty much been shut down because of budget cuts. And I had a son that I didn't have anything to do with for the summer, and I needed get him in some kind of structured program because we know the regression that happens with our kids. And I said, you know what, I'm going to start a camp and invite 200 of my son's kids, and uh, best friends, and we kind of laughed about it. But uh, the camp is really amazing because we have 60% kids who are on the spectrum or some other disability, and then 40% are their typical peers. So my daughter, who's just one year older, her name is Morgan than, than Marty, she got to go to camp with Marty. And in the daytime, in the morning, we had academics, you know, That's reading fantastic. and math, enhancement. And then in the afternoon, you know, we had sports and dancing and drama and music. And it, it was just an amazing, amazing experience for these kids, many of whom have never been in an included environment. Because, you know, our kids, oftentimes they're in segregated classrooms on campuses, and they're not mainstream or they're not included. So we had kids who this was their first experience. And then we had typical kids was their first experience with kids with disabilities. So the learning, the horizontal learning was just amazing. Uh, so I'm really proud of, of that and, and just, like I said, honored to be able to uh, teach parents through, we, we do another program that's really cool. It's called the Parent Advocacy Mentoring Program. It's 18 hours of intensive training to teach parents to be peer mentors. You know, wow. so we talked about going into that IEP alone. You know, uh, these are, are parents that can go with you. They're not paid advocates, but they've been through the IEP training. They they know what IDEA is. They know the acronyms. And they're really just there to lend support. And some of these parents have testified. You know, we, we do a public speaking part of this course. So we've had parents travel to the state capitol in Sacramento and testify before 
budget committee hearings. And, you know, my goal is to have a 1,000 of these parents, uh, you know, really around the country. We're putting the program up on the Internet so parents can take it via the Internet. But to really have these, these folks in communities around this country who are out there as ambassadors for our families and for our kids. Absolutely, and Ariva, I'm one um, of the mentors, and um, our our training um, was there's a, a smaller course just for the mentoring, which is around the 18 hours, and then we have the eight month um, policy making, and um, I'll, I'll hook you up with that. But I think as a mentor, I I probably learn more from the people that I mentor than than what I give. Sometimes <laughs> these are incredible, incredible moms and dads, and you know, whether it's employment or parenting, I just wish they could see themselves as how strong and wonderful and brave they really are. And and I, I hope that by maintaining um, and building a more um, confident um, advocacy group of parents, then, then they really will be able to change the world. They're, they're that good. They just don't know it yet. Right. You know, and, and that that just having someone like you to say that, I mean, some parents, you know, by the time they, they, they've been through a couple of IEPs and, you know, four or five different therapists, they are really beaten down. I mean, they, you know, they've been batted around from agency to agency. They, they've been overwhelmed. So just having someone like you may just, you know, say, you can do this. You well, can do this. And they're welcome. When I walked into, I never thought that I would get to visit with my senator in Washington D.C. or my state and uh, my state representatives and sen- senators. But they do. They want to see real people instead of absolutely. well-paid lobbyists. So we've got a lot hey, oh, of yeah, power. <laughs> a lot, and that's that's an excellent point. And that, that's one of the things we teach is, is what I call policy advocacy. Is yeah, if someone's a, a state rep or a federal, you know, congressperson, they're voting on a bill. They want to hear from the constituents that they serve. We don't just vote these people into office and say, okay, bye, you know, off to Washington, never hear from you Absolutely. again. They want to hear from us, and they want to hear what are our concerns and, you know, what works, what doesn't work, and what better way than, than you know, teaching someone or someone learning how to you know, compose a letter or an email saying, you know, I'm the parent of seven-year-old Johnny, and Johnny gets services to this particular agency, and there's a bill that's going to cut those services, and here's how this is going to impact Johnny. You know, that that's a personal message. That That's something that, you know, any representative can connect with, and when parents learn, as you just said, how powerful they are, it's just an amazing thing. You know, Ariva, um, this weekend, actually, this coming weekend, um, that's what's going on down in Washington. I was invited, actually, to speak. Unfortunately, um, I have previous commitments. But um, the Congress and your representatives do want to know what these children need, what families need, where they're struggling. And um, I know that I am asking parents to send me emails um, yes. Clatch at Gmail because I will be representing the parents. I will be there and be a voice to the parents, and that they need to know um, where people are struggling and what what these cuts are going to do and where they need to make changes. And I know that the um, special needs network, um, you really serve a lot of um, underserved communities, a lot of. Uh, families that have limited resources that are struggling. So, you know, what um, what resources and programs, um, what additional programs do you offer, and how would a parent get in touch with Special Needs Network? Is it just for the California area? 
Uh, a great question, Marianne. In terms of the additional resources that we offer, we do a lot of resource fairs where we connect parents with particular, you know, service providers and, you know, uh, professionals that work in the whole disability arena. Uh, we do the, the training, teaching parents to be mentors, teaching parents to be advocates. Uh, we offer tremendous resources on our website, and parents can go to or your listeners can go to www dot special needs network dot org. Uh it's www dot special needs network dot org and they can get information uh, about the various programs that we have and like I said I'm excited because we're in the process of making our programs available to parents around the country by offering internet based uh you know trainings and programs because we you know I had the good fortune last year uh when the everyday advocate was first uh released by Penguin, to do about a seven- or eight-state tour with my book. And I started at the United Nations and, you know, went to various cities. And I met parents. I made it a point. I didn't just go into a city and, you know, plop down at Barnes & Noble or Borders and do a book signing. I always connected with parents, and I connected with special needs schools, and I connected with community leaders in those cities because I wanted to hear, you know, how a parent, uh, in other parts of the country dealing with these issues. And what I, the central theme, no matter whether I was in Cleveland, Ohio, or Chicago, Illinois, or St. Louis, uh, you know, Santa Barbara, California, or Boston even, the central theme was advocacy. And how do I as a parent, how do we as a community become more involved, more engaged, and, you know, become more in control of what is available for our children and our community. So I know firsthand that, you know, parents are in need of of additional resources and training, and, again, I'm just honored to be able to offer my expertise gained from being a lawyer, from, you know, being a mom on this journey, from, you know, working in the nonprofit world, uh, having sat as a commissioner on a couple of state commissions that California has, uh, that have studied the whole issue of autism, to be able to really just share that information. Uh, I'm excited uh, about uh, May mentioned that I'm on my way to St. Louis next week to do a program called The Power of Advocacy. Uh, we expect two or 300 parents on it. We're going to be talking about, you know, this, this whole concept of advocacy. I, I think it's a movement. You know, for me, it, it's bigger than a word. It's bigger than a concept. It really is a movement. Uh, about people taking control of their lives and realizing that particularly in this economy, you know, we can't wait on or rely on other people to do it for us. But, you know, whether we want to get potholes filled in our streets or, you know, more lighting uh, apparatus on on the corners or more books in our school, we as parents, we as, as, as individuals have the power to do that. And, you know, I think that's what... Um, I'm most proud of what I do, and clearly from reading your book, you know, it's what you should be proud of, is that I really feel that if we get parents to effective therapies, treatments, resources, we can change these kids' lives because that's what it's about. It's about parents being aware of resources that are available for them, parents empowering themselves, and it's, you know, it just it changes it changes their lives. It changes the whole dynamic of the family. Yeah, we know if we get kids diagnosed early, if we get early intervention early, that the outcome is incredible. And that's why working in underserved communities is so important because we know that statistically African-American and Latino children are diagnosed two to four years later 
than their typical peers. So the later the diagnosis, by definition, the later the intervention. So by raising awareness in, in you know, communities of color, in underserved communities, if we can get those kids, you know, get parents knowing the warning signs, you know, while you're pregnant. You don't have to wait till the kid is born, you know. When you're doing your prenatal stuff, let's start talking about what do parents need to know about developmental warning signs. What should a child do at three months? What should a child do at six months? You know, right. those are really critical things, and it's, again, unbelievable how many parents don't know that. Right. And, and, it's, it's, and also parents kindergarten. Right, and pay a lot of parents, you know, that they'll they'll go to the pediatrician and say, you know, I think the language is a little delayed. I think this is a little delayed. Oh, don't worry. No, you do worry, and you get it checked because you're yeah. better safe than sorry in early intervention. Like you said, it's you know it's the key. But you know that's not to say that you know someone that's being diagnosed a little bit later that you know there's no hope for. That is absolutely not oh. true. I mean, these kids. Yep. Are are so adaptable, you know they really so, are, and uh, it's never better late. Better than never. I I totally agree with you. And if you're out, you know they're listening to this program, and you have a seven year old, you have a twelve year old, you have a fifteen year old. You know, don't feel like oh it's too late. I missed that window of opportunity. There's nothing I can do. It's uh-huh. never too late. Areva, can you can you help me with with what our our community is, is dealing with? How do we get the word out to some members of the of the minority community, the African Americans, the Hispanics? I, I even tried to work with the Vic program for a little while here, and, and and it's it was it was hard for even the the Vic administrators to um, you know to try and talk about children. It, it, it was just it wasn't that the parents were unwilling. It was that they didn't trust. How, yes. How? We, oh, May, you know, that's such an important, important concept. I'll tell you my recommendation and what I did. Okay. I started in the black church. Where are African Americans? Where do they have? Where can you find the largest concentration? Who are the, the people that they listen to the most? And the answer to that is the black church and the black ministers. So in any city that you're in, and I, I work with other groups, and I tell folks, go to the ch- I started Special Needs Network by doing workshops after church services in churches around L.A. I would call the pastors and tell them about autism, tell them, the you know, the incidents, what was happening, the fact that, you know, here are the statistics about African Americans and Latinos. Can, can I get you to make a one-minute announcement from your pulpit on Sunday inviting parents to come down, stairs to the basement after church for an informational meeting. And I got pastors to do that, and I started by doing outreach in those churches. And it's funny, a woman that that just finished one of our 18-hour intensive programs recounts how she met me at a church five years ago when I started doing that, and she's been you know, with Special Needs Network ever since. And that's true of Latino communities as well. You know, you go into the church communities and and you'll find the people. And the trust that's already there with the ministers is where you can start. And if they see you're aligned, if this is a message, if this is a person that this minister says, I've allowed into my church, that's a big step forward in terms of building that trust. Because there is a lot of distrust in those communities. You're right. That's a reality, and you have to figure out ways to overcome that. And, And the church as an institution is a good place to start. 
Thank you. Well, Reva, we have to start wrapping up, but I do want to uh, thank you for coming. I know. It's like it goes so fast, and I, I just feel I didn't even do it justice because between the, the network and the book, I mean, you're just a treasure trove. And, you know, you're giving so much to the community. How does the community give back to Special Needs Network? How can we support you? You know, doing just what you're doing today, Marianne, giving us a forum to talk about this because awareness happens through these kinds of discussions. I love what you do, having experts on, you know, having parents on. The work that you're doing is so critical because, you know, just like that woman met me in a church, there's someone listening to this program whose life is going to be changed because of the message, because of the programming that the Coffee Clatch is doing. So just continue to do the work that you're doing. Invite me back. Anytime. <laughs> to continue, you know, to continue the dialogue, to continue, you know, this discussion and, and that, you know. this is a, It's almost like multi-level marketing, you know. We're all working at different levels, but each, you know, each piece of the puzzle that you put down or that I put down, you know, builds, and, and eventually we're going to have, you know, a completed puzzle. So the work that all of us do, you know, is so important, and layered on top of, you know, each other is, is what's making the difference, which is why today the services available for, you know, my son look so different than what, you know, they looked like five, six, seven years ago because folks like you have just jumped in and have, have just added so much, you know, to the discussion. Well, thank you, but you know we've all we've all been there. I mean, you know, we're paving the way for 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 these kids. You've done it. I've done it. May's done it. I mean, you know, really, you know, it's we've been there. We we've set the the pavements down, and you know, other parents are free to walk on them. So you know, let's just hope that uh, you know we're helping people. And um, you know, I know you're coming up. You're going to be on the doctor soon. And um, you know, you yeah, where can, where, where can people go find your um, your schedule of events? What's your website? com. Again, that's com. And, uh, yeah, I did uh, go uh, and tape a, a segment of the doctors, and it, it airs on Monday, April 11th. And it's a really cool segment. I got to give away books to the audience. And we were talking about, you know, how parents can advocate for their kids' best health. We talked about issues of kids being on diets and, you know, kids having access to sugary foods in the school, uh, watching movies that have, you know, depict characters that are smoking, and just all the, the issues that we as parents have to deal with in terms of what our kids are exposed to. And, again, how do we set that example? How do we intervene? How do we stand up for And how do we advocate for our kids? So they well, can, you know, did. find all the work that I'm doing at www.arivamartin.com. And... Go to my fan page on Facebook. I am a huge social media advocate, and I believe in connecting with folks all over the world through social media. I have a fan page uh, uh, on Facebook, and go there. I'm always talking about, you know, things that are impacting the community, things that I'm doing, things that other folks are doing. So I invite folks, and you know, follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Ariva M, and I'm on Facebook. And, and I well, just want to say, we definitely uh, have to have you back, Ariva. That's for sure. Oh, we have one you. minute left. We'll definitely have you back because there's so many other things I wanted to go through. So I really appreciate you taking the time and and coming on tonight. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure, and I look forward to coming back. And thanks, May, for your you know insightful questions. Welcome, and can't wait to see you in St. Louis. Okay. My and, hometown. Um, we have, I'm excited. <laughs> 
We have some, um, I'd want to announce just two or three upcoming shows. You can go to our website and um, go to upcoming events. We have incredible guests coming up. Um, This Wednesday, we're going to be featuring our Your Chat, which is a very popular, we do it every month or so, and it's your time to talk about your issues, your resources, your triumphs, your struggles. It's your hour on Twitter. Sunday, Ann Barbano. She is the host of The New Frontier. Um, She is the producer and director of The Autism Maze. She will be on with me here on Blog Talk next Sunday. And we have Dr. Russell Barkley coming on. Yes, you heard me, the Russell Barkley, the most renowned expert on attention deficit disorder in the world, is coming on. That is on April 27th. We have his one-hour presentation up on our website. You can watch it. Incredibly informative. And remember, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent. Thank you for joining us tonight on The Coffee Clutch. Thanks, May. Thanks, Chuck. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.